Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. It all starts this week. Republicans in a big hurry. It's such a big hurry to get these Trump nominees through uh, their first hearing and into their jobs that they are skipping all the procedures that normally have to happen, meaning they're having the hearings even before the Ethics Committee has finished its work, at least on four out of five of the nominees. It's the big rush. Uh, And what is so funny about it, or disgusting about it, actually, is that uh, Mitch McConnell has totally reversed himself from the stand that he took nine or eight years ago when it was President Obama who had just been recently elected and his cabinet picks were up and Mitch McConnell at the time was saying, whoa, 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 there's no hurry. Slow it down. Let's make sure we have every single document we need and want to take a look at before we hold uh, any hearings. He's singing a different tune today. But they have scheduled nine hearings in three days, and again, uh, very significant that they could somehow find time for all these hearings, and yet in an entire year, almost a year, from March until January or December, they could not find even one hour to hold a hearing on President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, to the Supreme Court. So um, let's, let's start with, uh, with uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, letter. Way back in 2008, uh, he wrote a letter to Senator Harry Reid, the Democratic leader at the time, uh, and it goes like this. The Sen- Dear Harry, the Senate has the constitutional duty to provide its advice and counsel on presidential nominations. In consultation with our ranking members, we reaffirm our commitment to conduct the appropriate review of these nominations, regardless of their political party. But but we will only do so consistent with the longstanding and best practices of committees. These best practices serve the Senate well. Therefore, prior to considering any agreements on the floor on any nominee, we expect the following standards will be met. And then he lists eight conditions. That the FBI background check is complete. That the Office of Government Ethics background is complete. That they have all their financial disclosure statements out there. That all the committee questionnaires are complete, that the nominee is willing to have committee staff interviews, that the nominee has, has been through a hearing, and, and then that they meet with all the members who requested, uh, and um, 
the, and the and finally the nominee has committed to cooperate with the ranking members on request for information and transparency, which sort of repeats the things that he said uh, uh, earlier. Eight points. And guess what? This year, he's rushing ahead in these committee hearings with none of the above having been accomplished. And Mitch McConnell says that anybody who disagrees with that is just sour grapes and a poor loser. Yeah, guess what? The poor loser, right. (laughs) No, no, no. This does make sense. This does make sense that these that these uh, conditions be met. And by the way, they were met in 2008 and 2009. Uh, As Josh Ernest uh, told uh, us at the White House yesterday, reporters at the White House, uh, all the Obama nominees had passed their ethics review before the vote. The Obama administration never asked for a nominee to get a hearing in the United States Senate until their Office of Government Ethics letter was complete. And Senator Blumenthal, Rich Blumenthal from Connecticut yesterday, uh, mentioned to reporters why uh, this kind of information is so important. Financial disclosure, background checks, these steps are not technicalities. They are essential to provide information that enables us to make intelligent, informed judgments about these nominees. Yeah, because no matter who it is, right, you can't buy a pig in a poke. Even if uh, Donald Trump says, this is the person I want here, you got to take a look and make sure that person is qualified and doesn't have some serious financial problems or ethical problems which would prevent him or her from doing that job. Even if it's a President Obama nominee, the Senate's got, got, got its responsibility to do its job and look at this information. Uh, and Chuck Schumer, the new Democratic leader of the Senate uh, yesterday, who, by the way, uh, did, a, I thought, a brilliant move. He took that Mitch McConnell letter that I just read to you and took the, the very same letter, and he just crossed out Harry, <laughs> and he put Dear Mitch and, uh, and, uh, and sent that letter to Mitch McConnell, making the very exact same request eight years later. Chuck Schumer saying, maybe we can't stop him, but we can slow things down. Very things McConnell thought were necessary for nominations, we're asking for, and now they're denying it. Yeah, what a bunch of hypocrites! Yeah. This uh, Schumer, I, I think, knocked it out of the park. Yeah, with with Perfect. that, uh, just took that letter, boom. I mean, it's it's exactly <laughs> what Mitch McConnell did, and and it's important, by the way, because we are so in a routine right now with this sort of the way the politics are going of just rewriting facts and whitewashing what we know to be true, what has already actually happened. And here it is in writing. Mitch McConnell put in writing what he thinks his standard should be for confirming appointees. You want to know what he thinks? Don't listen to him now. Listen to what he said when when Obama uh, had the power. No better way to make the point. So here we go with these nine hearings this weekend. Five out of nine, uh, I'm sorry, four out of nine of the uh, nominees that are going to be considered this week. The Office of Government Ethics has not yet finished the work, uh, has not yet released its review of their records. Uh, And they are Betsy DeVos for education, John Kelly, Department of Homeland Security, 
Wilbur Ross for Commerce and Ben Carson for Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, of the nine, the big ones that are coming up this week and the ones that the Democrats uh, are going to be focused focus most on, the first one is today um, probably the single worst appointment that Donald Trump has made, in my humble opinion, and that is Senator Jeff Sessions from Alabama, uh, a, an opponent of the Voting Rights Act, an opponent of the Civil Rights Act, an opponent of women's rights across the board for years and years and years, Jeff Sessions to be the Attorney General of the United States, whose job, of course, is to protect our constitutional rights, not to undermine them. Uh, Jeff Sessions... Um, a long history of uh, anti-civil rights activity uh, and actions, uh, activity and statements, rather, in, in, in the South, totally unqualified uh, to be attorney general. And he singularly has refused to provide any documentation on his past statements, on his past interviews. He has, the, the committee has requested copies of all interviews uh, and articles uh, that he has written or he's been involved in for the last for his for his career, as the New York Times pointed out yesterday, he has provided eleven uh, eleven documents uh, or records of eleven interviews. Uh, none of them previous prior to two thousand and three. In other words, Jeff Sessions is deliberately covering up, trying to hide his record. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, other forces are at work digging into his past. Uh, and tonight, significantly, uh, Senator Cory Booker is going to take the floor of uh, the first time ever an incumbent senator has taken the floor of the Senate to speak out in opposition to a fellow senator's nomination for a cabinet post, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, is going to speak out against Jeff Sessions uh, for Attorney General this evening on the floor of the Senate. That is huge. That is really significant. And you can bet that Senator Dianne Feinstein, the ranking Democrat on, uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, is going to take the lead in very, very tough questions on Jeff Sessions. I know Dianne Feinstein very well. She will go in there well-armed with the with evidence of Jeff Sessions' uh, past statements, past actions, past votes, and she will nail him. I, I think this is really significant because as we were leading up to this, you heard everybody talk about the uh, <coughs> the sort of senatorial courtesy, right, where well, yeah, they yeah. all are very nice to each other. And it, and, it does exist. And it but. exists. But it also, this I think is a signifier of just how – scary a time we are currently in and how different the political scene is than anything that we've ever seen. This is if this is what it takes for people to realize it, it's something as wonky and sort of inside as as the senators not uh, testifying against each other. But if that's what it takes to drive the point home of how bad Jeff Sessions is and how bad he will be, especially serving under Donald Trump, then yeah. And again, as with Jeff Sessions, as with the Scott Pruitt at EPA, as with Betsy DeVos at Education, it's not just that the, we all share the same goals, and they have just different ways of getting to those goals. No, 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 no. These are people who fundamentally disagree with the, with the primary mission of the agencies that they have been led to, uh, to, to, to be the head of or nominated to be the head of uh, by, by Donald Trump. 
Uh, and with Jeff Sessions, again, it's not that he has a different thing about view about voting rights. He just says there shouldn't be any federal legislation about voting rights at all, that states should be able to do whatever the hell they want. One other sign of how the Republicans are trying to rush this process and, and, and not uh, handle things the way they have in the past is that there are several members of the Congressional Black Caucus led by Congressman John Lewis who have requested to testify uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, in opposition to Senator Sessions' nomination. And typically, you know, you've seen this happen. Members of Congress get first rank. They are recognized before anybody from outside the Congress, again, as a matter of either House or Senate courtesy. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, has said, oh, no, we're not going to do that this time, that John Lewis can testify, but only after all the outside witnesses who want from outside the Congress who want to testify for or against Senator Sessions, after they have a chance to speak, then we'll let some of the members of the House uh, of the Congressional Black, Black Caucus speak. Um, so it is already, they're trying to make it a stacked deck. That's going to be the uh, number one focus, uh, and I think the most explosive and the most um, uh, contentious, if you will, hearing, uh, followed by Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State. If Jeff Sessions is the worst nominee, I think uh, Rex Tillerson is a close second <laughs> in the sense that here's a man, CEO of Exxon, worth billions and billions of dollars, Vladimir Putin's best buddy, uh, has, has openly said the sanctions, has said the sanctions against Russia are a bad idea and we ought to lift them mainly because Exxon has a $500 billion oil drilling deal in Siberia, which would can't, which is blocked and cannot go forward until the sanctions are lifted. Uh, with all of those close personal and financial ties with Russia, to, to, uh, to point this guy who has zero government experience, zero foreign policy experience, at least in terms of government experience, lots of foreign deals with foreign nations, not all of them friendly to the United States, as Secretary of State, dangerous, slippery slope. Uh, you can be sure that that hearing is going to get a lot of attention either, uh, as well. Uh, related to so the confirmation hearings start this week. We will be following them very closely and talking to people who are reporting on them and involved in those. I, I think, um, by the way, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio has also said he's a no vote. Yep. On uh, on Jeff Sessions. So, For the record, uh, so he may squeak through, but it's not going to be easy, and he shouldn't get through at all. One other name who is in favor of Jeff Sessions is uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, which a lot of people were looking to uh, as one of the few African Americans in the Senate. Uh, to see where he would fall on that, and he is going to vote for Jeff Sessions. He says he knows his heart. Uh, which is disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, a big day today, first of nine confirmation hearings in the next three days. This one well, may be the most important of all, or the one that get, may get the most attention, uh, for Jeff Sessions, nominated to be the next Attorney General of the United States. Uh, Joel Payne has been right in the middle of things on Capitol Hill as a former Deputy Press Secretary to uh, Leader Harry Reid. 
Uh, he's also former director of African-American paid media and advertising for the Hillary for America campaign. Uh, and his day job is with Corvus MSL Group here in Washington, D.C., joining us in the studio. Hey, Joel, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Bill. So um, eight years ago when uh, they were gearing up for uh, hearings on the uh, uh, President Obama's nominations, uh, Mitch McConnell was singing a different tune about all the uh, the work, preliminary work that had to be done, completed, the procedures followed before any hearings were held. Was he ever? Um, I thought it was so smart by Senator Schumer yesterday. Um, I hope you guys got a chance to see the letter. Oh, that yeah, he, we read it. And it's not <laughs> that he even rewrote the letter. He took the original letter that that McConnell sent to Harry Reid, to my old boss, eight years ago, and just scratched out his name and said, instead of Harry, Mitch, and instead of minority leader, majority leader, I thought it was brilliant. Um, I think it shows the hypocrisy. I think it shows the double standard uh, that Senate Republicans want to employ here. I, I think it's um, a really smart tack by the by the major, uh, the Democratic leader. Why is it important to have all this information? I think it's important because similar to how we vet our presidents normally, we need to vet all of our cabinet nominees. And the fact that they are trying to ramrod this down the American people's throats should really be concerning. There's a lot of vetting that needs to go on. We need to know all about Jeff Sessions' past. We need to know all about Betsy DeVos and her past and, and her affiliations. We need to know um, about Ben Carson and what he'll do as HUD secretary. You just need to understand the potential con con conflicts that might exist for these folks who you're appointing to very high leverage positions. I think it's really important. How do you see the uh, nomination for, uh, now, Jeff Sessions, pardon me, uh, we know his past. We also know he's a United States senator. Uh, and usually United States senators, you know, they tiptoe around any issues. If it's a fellow senator, the old senatorial courtesy comes into play. Will it Will it uh, prevail here? Well, I think whether they call it America's oldest club. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, look, I, I want to I, I give Senator uh, Schumer and the Democratic leadership, I give them the benefit of the doubt. I know that they are not going to take it easy on Senator Sessions. And, and honestly, I think that there are some Republicans who, if they are looking at the people back in their district, they will do a true vetting of Senator Sessions. I mean, some of the things that you see, go back to that 1980, I think it was 85 confirmation hearing for him as a federal judge. Um, some of the things that he said to subordinates, some of the things that he said to people in his community, um, it's disconcerting to me as an African-American that this person is supposed to be in charge of fighting gerrymandering and fighting um, for the Civil Rights Act. This does not seem like the values of a person who you want in that position. If you have to go out and try and convince people that you are not a racist, <laughs> and you say, and there's a quote, that you have a, quote, great relationship with <clears throat> the blacks, yes. <clears throat> end yes. quote, uh, yeah, you deserve every ounce of scrutiny when it comes to your relationship. I mean, we live in a time where there are African-Americans uh, being gunned down in the street and people aren't facing justice for it. And that falls under what Jefferson Beauregard Sessions would be uh, in charge of. And that should terrify everybody. And even even when you go back to a couple of years ago when the Civil Rights Act was up for um, a you know a 30-year extension. I think he may have eventually voted for a final version of it, but I think he said something like, you know, the South, finally the South is uh, getting what they want on the civil rights. I mean, this, again, this just does not seem like the values of somebody we want in this position. Um, that's not consistent with the values of the people who 
need people in leadership who are going to fight for the things they expect them to fight for. Right. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Frank Cessno, uh, director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, author of the new book, Ask More, just out. I read it, Frank, cover to cover. Great book. <laughs> Thank you. Lots of great stories in there I want to talk to you about. Did the media do its job in really... Um, Reporting on Donald Trump, or no. they did just let Donald Trump kind of dominate. No, I mean I think that. I, look, first of all, I need to do the disclaimer on media, right? The word media is plural, so there are lots of different types of media. So who are we talking about here? Yeah. But on overall, um, everybody was shocked. Donald Trump, I, I see the Donald Trump campaign in three distinct phases, okay? First, there was the novelty phase. Oh, this guy's never going anywhere. But, you know, here's a man who's never met a microphone or a camera he didn't like, so put him on. He's a good time. He's fun. He grabs eyeballs, and it's all a joke, all right? And he gets all this free time. Then he comes to, around Super Tuesday. Oh, my goodness, the guy's actually winning, and he becomes the contender. And the contender starts getting some more focus and some more attention. The, his opponents, his Republican opponents, still can't quite figure out what to do. Do we ignore him? Do we attack him? But it starts to get a little bit sharper. But he's still mm -hmm. enjoying a lot of free airtime. Then he wins, or he's on the verge of, of, of clinching. And he becomes, as the media saw him and others, the clear and present danger. And then it was full attack mode. What happened in all of this? A, Trump consumed all the oxygen in the room. If you go out and you ask people, this is a little game I like to do, and it's really interesting. Forget Make America Great Again and Stronger Together. Forget the campaign slogans from the two sides. And forget whether you liked or hated Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Tell me three things that Donald Trump pledged he was going to do as a candidate. Everybody will tell you. Build a wall, throw Hillary in jail, rip up trade deals. Now tell me three things that Hillary Clinton said she was going to do. And the room goes silent. Mm -hmm. She had almost no, there was, uh, there was virtually no time spent on her. So that's one thing that happened. The other thing that happened is, especially on talk TV and in talk radio. Everybody, By the way, part of that is her fault, too. Part of that is her fault. Oh, yeah. She ran a yeah. bad campaign. Yeah. She was, a, she was a flawed candidate in many, many ways. But still. Uh, but the other thing that, that, that happened is that, you know, Trump tweets in the morning and everybody goes crazy and talks about that all day long. And there was this lost sense of proportion and people talking about people and people talking about Trump instead of news organizations going out and doing real reporting on what his proposals or policies really meant, how the effects would trickle down or up, who they would help, who they would hurt and really digging in. That's what we did once upon a time, right, I think, right, right. in what we call journalism. Yeah. And as part of that, do you think, I mean, somebody came up with this great phrase, I believe, which is that Trump supporters took him seriously, but not literally. Reporters took him literally, but not That's right. seriously. He broke every rule, Bill, that, that you and I and people in the media, in, in journalism, uh, you know, sort of hold sacred, right? It, you're, you build your a case based on facts. So what are the facts? 
we create a judgment built on evidence. What's the evidence? Uh, there are certain behaviors that are acceptable and not acceptable, and not acceptable is making fun of people or calling out people or being seeming to be exclusionary or hateful. And he did all of those things or winked and nodded when others did. And, I mean, I remember, because we covered the campaign, once upon a time a guy named Joe Biden ran for president, yeah. and there was a little suggestion that there was some plagiarism or a lifted line, and he was gone. I remember a guy named Howard Dean who kind of screamed one time, and he was a little out of control, and he was gone. None of those things applied to Trump somehow, and so people didn't know how to cover it. Even the famous um, Apprentice tape or the on the on the bus, right, the tape that came out where— you would think that that would kill that that would have killed yeah. any other candidate that you and I have covered. Well, I have now. a couple of postmortems on this. One of which is when you want to burn down the house, you hire the arsonist. And Donald Trump was seen as the arsonist by a lot of people who are thoroughly sick of Washington. And this getting sick of Washington has been building over decades. And it and it became worse probably after 2008 when so many people were affected so profoundly and people in Washington and Wall Street kind of skipped through life, or mm -hmm. so it seemed. And, um, you know, we have increasingly uh, tough identity politics. We have increasingly tough ideology politics. And my beloved business, the media, have not helped. We have helped to drive people apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, where do we now go to come well, together? Well, that, that was, that's where, of course, where I was going with my with my next question, because now he will be the president of the United States. You know, it's T minus 10. Uh, and what is the role of the media now? now for, for example, one of these issues, you say, is build. The, we're going to build the wall. Mexico is going to pay for it. That was the campaign. Now is we're going to build the wall and pay for it. And Mexico is going to reimburse us. Now, that's an out. Uh, audacious, certainly, change of plans here. Well, but What's here's the media but, do but, about but, that. Just say, okay, well, let's no, move yeah, on. I mean, you're going to cover, it, but here's a good, here's a great example. I think of taking literally and not seriously, seriously, not literally. Does it really matter in the end to to people who think that we need to have a tougher border, whether the wall is com complete and contiguous or whether it's in bits and pieces? Does it really matter whether we front the money and then we we pay for it over time on an on a if he comes up with some kind of, you know, tax or something on Mexican goods that come across the wall to, to, to pay. For. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to put it together. But if you're taking them seriously, but not literally, if there is a tougher border and more of a wall, he's delivered. His supporters don't care. If he, well, yeah. I'm not sure actually they're wrong, Bill. I mean, in, in, in this in this way, I mean, it, you know, has Mexico written the check? No. But is there a wall where there wasn't in places? There may be. Does it amount to a tougher border restrictions? Well, we'll see. And that's that's where we need to step back and say, OK, what really matters here? What really matters is the result, whether it's the wall or Obamacare. OK, if you're going to repeal Obamacare, are you going to throw 20 million people out on the street or are you going to modify it? To be honest, the way probably the Democrats would have done if they had won, because there are parts of it that need to be fixed. Uh, tonight, uh, President Obama giving his farewell speech from Chicago. Tomorrow, President-elect Trump giving his first news conference since he was elected, where he is ostensibly going to uh, talk about how he will untangle all of his uh, potential financial conflicts and have a clean slate going forward uh, as president. That and a uh, lot of fodder 
for our guest, Frank Cessno, here for the entire hour as a friend of Bill, again, with uh, George Washington School of Media and Public Affairs, author of the new book, Ask More, and former White House correspondent and Washington bureau chief for CNN. Frank, you've got so many titles, it's hard to keep track of. Can't hold a job. And we are joined (laughs) by a good friend and a colleague and a long-time veteran White House Correspondent Tom DeFrank now with the National Journal. Hey, Tom, it's good to see you. Always back. Always glad to be here, Bill. We and a neighbor on Capitol Hill. So uh, it's exciting. Exciting neighborhood, Frank. Yeah. 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 You guys live. You Those know, of you who live across you the live river, right. I'm yeah. not sure. You're right. yeah, but, if you don't live on Capitol Hill, you don't understand how important it is to be looking at the prospect of a Trader Joe's opening about 100 yards from where we're speaking right now. That's, that's no, no bubble here. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is the stuff we care about, yeah. Frank. Right. Okay. So, Tom, you have written about Donald Trump. He made history. Now he's got a job to do. How many presidents have you covered at the White House? Uh, Donald Trump will be my 10th. Donald Trump will be my 10th. And every time I think about that, uh, Bill, I I finally start thinking that maybe I'm a little old. I started at the White House as a Newsweek intern in in the summer of uh, 1968. And LBJ was still president. I actually went on a trip with Lyndon Johnson to dedicate a dam in Tennessee in June of 1968, and I've been there ever since. So that's, um, God help us all, that's 22% of every American president. <laughs> so whatever else, whatever else I do or don't know, uh, I have some institutional well, you guys were memory. there at the same time. I, I, you we know, I, got, I got there as, you know, I, I like to think of myself as the kindergarten correspondent when I got there in uh, 1982 to cover uh, Ronald Reagan, and Tom was there, uh, an incredible gentleman to other journalists who were there, and knowledgeable beyond belief at the time, and, and deeper still now. So Tom's sort of a national treasure, I think. Yeah, well, but, as the Duke of Wellington once said, Frank, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. But <laughs> thank you very much. But it's true. Always been a pleasure dealing with you. So with this transition, isn't it true that um, we've never seen a transition like this in a sense of, let's let's face it, if a Marco Rubio or a, um, I don't know, a Chris Christie or even a Ted Cruz had, had won this election, it would be a different story than it is today, right? Because they would all sort of be doing things the same way, right? Frank, this is unlike anything we've seen, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, every convention has been defied here. I mean, you know, and I, I like to think of it. I don't know if I like to think of it, but it's the fact that, you know, Donald Trump comes to office never having served his country in any capacity. He wasn't in the military. He wasn't on the school board. He wasn't a dog catcher. He's done, you know, not a member of Congress or anything. And unlike, say, Ronald Reagan, when Reagan came here, you know, Reagan was a very much an anti, you know, Reagan campaigned against the puzzle palaces on the Potomac and all of this kind of thing. But he was very much an establishment He'd been governor for two terms, terms, and his kitchen cabinet was very much an establishment crowd. The the, the people that Donald Trump are bringing with him, Tom, are less experienced in in government than any core group of advisors we've seen. Isn't that right? I think that's right, Fred, uh, uh, Frank. Uh, with few, with a few exceptions, of course, Jeff Sessions has sure. been a senator from Alabama for a long time. Jim Mattis has a long and distinguished career as a uh, military officer who's probably going to be the uh, Secretary of Defense. But those are the exceptions, not the rules. These are a, th- this cabinet is by design, I think, uh, people who are do- doers, what, what Trump would call doers. Uh, people who have uh, made their fortunes in the business world, 
and and uh, that's that's by design. He wants to shake up the bureaucracy. He wants to send a message that it's not going to be business as usual anymore. But the bottom line is, I think there is a level of inexperience that is higher than than any I've ever seen. I think what's going to be really interesting too is that. Um, you know, I said earlier, if you want to burn down the house, hire the arsonist. So what, what, what Trump is saying here is we can do business here. But the, the really fundamental difference, as anybody you know, will tell you, is when you're a CEO, if you don't like something, you fire somebody and you, you know, come up with a new product. or You buy another company. You can move very decisively and you can move pretty unilaterally. This is an, an enterprise of constituencies and, and, and coalitions, and you've got this thing called the Congress and these things called the courts and these things called treaties and all these things that constrain you. And, and how you manage those relationships is altogether different than how you manage them at, at, at the level of business. Now, some of those relationships need to be blown up. And it's and Washington is broken. So who knows? Maybe this will surprise a lot of people and will, will work. But that's the very big departure from what we've seen in the past. Right. Well, we were there at, the, at President Obama's last news conference. We've been to several Obama news conferences. And uh, while I was <laughs> when I wasn't taking care of this poor woman who fainted and getting her to the doctor's office, um, I was just re- reflecting on President Obama's style and taking these questions on almost any issues. And, you know, the joke among us is, oh, an hour let means three questions because his answers are so long. But the contrast between what it would be like with a Donald Trump standing at that podium, it is night and day, Tom. Uh, the the answers are going to be sound bites, not uh, expositions. I mean, he does not have... Will he take the, questions? Well, he'll take them, but I'm, I'm not sure he'll answer them now. No. <laughs> You know, most politicians have perfected the art of uh, giving an answer that you want to give, whether it's the right answer to the question being asked or whatever. So, but but I think it is fair to say that Trump, at least on paper, is the has been the least prepared by virtue of his lack of experience, as Frank has talked about. That doesn't mean he's going to be a bad president. Quite the contrary, I and mean, it doesn't mean that because he's not as maybe not as smart as Jimmy Carter or, or or some other presidents, Barack Obama, that he's not going to do well. I remember Jimmy Carter uh, was a nuclear physicist, a very smart guy, but that didn't guarantee him being a pretty good president. I think history has decided he was not a very good president. Ronald Reagan had a degree in economics, but uh, he was not viewed as, as a really super bright intellectual egghead. And this history is recording, I think, that his eight years were pretty effective. So intellect and all of that is is not necessarily dispositive, to use a word I don't like to use. But, <laughs> but the fact is <clears throat> Trump has got a big learning curve. And I thought for much of the campaign, I, I kept listening to him and I kept saying, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Well, now he's in the process of learning what he doesn't know. Uh, through these briefings from President Obama, from intelligence uh, officers, from uh, experts, uh, his transition team. So I think he now knows the magnitude of the task that faces him. And in a situation like this, when you have somebody like Frank says who's never spent a day mm-hmm. in a governmental uh, or military position, it's really important to surround yourself with the best you can find. And I, I, I sometimes say uh, with with appointments you've got to have the best and the brightest and sometimes you get uh, to clean this up you get the cream of the crud <laughs> and uh, this is this cabinet yeah. at the moment is uh, is you get some of both there one of the things 
in, in, the, in the book that I wrote, Ask More, that, that, uh, that I observe is good leaders ask great questions. Uh, they ask, uh, they, they know that, the, that they don't know everything, and they ask the people around them uh, who, are, who are smarter than them or who are deeper than them in a particular area, yeah. Yeah. what do I need to understand about this? What am I not thinking about? What is unpredictable uh, in, in our scenario here? We don't know what kind of questioner Donald Trump is going to be in this role. Certainly, his public persona, there's, there's you know, he, he, he doesn't appear to much care about knowing what he doesn't know. He says, well, you know, and, you know, disparaging the intelligence uh, network that, you know, the United, United States has spent an awful lot of time and money to build, which is pretty impressive, not infallible by any means, but nonetheless valuable. Um, you know, I don't know what you gain by disparaging the experts around you. So that's going to be a big question mark around his 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 president. I must say, I never worked in the White House, but I was uh, uh, a an advisor to Governor Jerry Brown the first time around. And on, what struck me so much in meetings with Jerry Brown was how people would walk in and they had spent months putting some plan together, something like that. And in the first two or three questions, Jerry Brown would destroy that whole right, project. Right. I mean, he knew exactly what questions to ask. He would go right to the heart of the matter. Maybe it was his Jesuit training or something. But it just blew me away thinking, man, he, he had spent no time thinking about it ahead of time. But he looked, he heard, listened, and then he went right to the weaknesses in it, which was, uh, uh, again, a real leadership quality. And I understand that President Obama is like that, too, in his briefings that, that he really just bores, bores right in. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, in handing out jobs, Donald Trump is not reaching very far afield. His latest pick for top White House advisor, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Hey, the problem is that Kushner, like Trump, has his own big-time financial conflicts. Also, he has zero government experience. And then there's a law against presidents naming members of their own families to positions in their office. So, yes, there's a law against it, but Donald Trump doesn't care. He says that he's above the law. Hey, isn't that what they used to say about Bill and Hillary Clinton? Oh, yeah, but Donald Trump thinks that he can uh, flaunt the law and still get away with it. That's my parting shot for today. I'm Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show.